Hey, hey, y'all. It's me, Robin. And just real quick before we get to today's episode, if you are loving listening to the podcast, or maybe you don't know because you've just pressed play for the first time ever, but if you like to listen to things in your earbuds, you are going to be so happy to know that Raising Kids with Big Baffling Behaviors is now released as an audiobook. You can get it in Audible or wherever else you get your audiobooks. And of course, you can still get it in print and ebook. If you go to robingobel.com slash book, it's going to give you all the options, including that you could order a signed copy from my local bookstore. Alrighty, y'all. Here's that podcast episode you're waiting for. So when your kid's behavior is baffling, and yours is too sometimes, yeah, I know. Let's take a break from all the bamboozle here on the Baffling Behavior Show. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Baffling Behavior Show. I'm your host, Robin Goble, former therapist turned author, educator, community creator, and obviously podcaster. If you're new here, welcome. This podcast is for parents of kids with vulnerable nervous systems and big baffling behaviors. Many of the parents who listen have kids with a history of trauma, especially complex and attachment trauma, because that's my primary area of expertise. But over the years, more and more parents of kids with vulnerable nervous systems due to all sorts of other reasons or maybe no known reason at all have been turning in. I have been so fortunate in my 20-year career to have studied intensely with some of the leaders in our field of relational neuroscience, which is simply the science of being relationally, socially, and behaviorally human. Relational neuroscience has helped me make sense of even the most baffling behaviors, which has then offered me like kind of like a map toward helping kids get the support that they need so their nervous system can rest and heal. On this show, my goal is to share that map with you. Today, I am absolutely thrilled to introduce you to my guest, Amanda Diekman. Now, I only just met Amanda, but we clicked immediately. Her first book, Low Demand Parenting, is coming out the week that this episode airs, and y'all, it is Excellent. In fact, we have the same publisher and I reached out to my publisher to get an advanced copy. It's fantastic. Amanda beautifully tackles a topic that really almost nobody else is willing to talk about. And that's how do we parent a child who is highly dysregulated by seemingly any demand or expectation? Those of you who resonate with Amanda's experience are going to breathe a huge sigh of relief. Finally, some permission to parent your child in the way they need without the fear-mongering that you're being too permissive or ruining their future or whatever other fear that we have generated in our current culture. Y'all, this episode is so good. Let's just dive right in. Amanda, I am so happy to be meeting with you this morning. Welcome to the show. Thank 
you. I am super thrilled to be with you and with your audience. This is a great honor. I have to tell the audience that I feel like our meeting has been quite serendipitous that I knew we had the same publisher and reached out to my publisher and I was like, hey, anyway, you can get me a little sneak peek of this book. I'm thinking about (laughs) inviting her on the show. And then like not even a week later, you contacted me. So I feel like this was just meant to be. Yes, I am really, really thrilled to to join you and um, yeah, to to find ways for our voices to to mingle in the time to come. So this is really exciting. Me too. Me too. So tell everybody just about the work that you do and how we have kind of come to have this similarity and and how mm-hmm. we are with our families in the world. Yes, I live in. Durham, North Carolina with three neurodivergent kids and a spouse. And um, I work online as low demand Amanda. Mm -hmm. And I have through learning from my children and listening deeply to my own nervous system and my own brain wiring learned so many ways of radically aligning with my children while caring deeply for myself. And Mm. Um, the, the process that we developed together became just the way we do things as a family. And eventually I realized that this was a thing and it deserved a name. And that also that there was a process that we had developed together and, um, you're, We'll talk about this, but I'm autistic. And one of the great gifts of having my particular autistic brain is that pattern recognition comes really naturally and easily to me. So I began to see this six step pattern that we were working through every meltdown, every challenge, every difficulty, we were moving through the same steps. And so about a year and a half ago, I came out online as autistic and as a parent of children with severely dysregulated, difficult behaviors. And I began talking about what we were doing and I called it low demand parenting. And the journey since then has really been um, bringing parents out of these silent silos where they're suffering and ashamed and alone and feeling like nobody will get it because what I'm seeing is so dramatic and so scary and so difficult. And everybody around me tells me it's my fault. And, and also people who are actively practicing low demand parenting without knowing it's a thing. And without any support and often with a lot of shame that they're somehow messing up because this flies in the face of so much of our modern parenting culture. So I consider myself like a, a gatherer. I'm, I'm finding the people who are, are alone and bringing them together under a tent and a guide to help people begin to walk through these steps and um, to bring more of their own self-awareness and self-compassion in the process. I love the term low demand parenting because I'm a big fan of just labeling, like just giving words to reality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's so often, I would say so often, like, let's just make the implicit explicit. Let's just make that like it's happening anyway. Let's just give 
words to it, and especially with my background in attachment theory, that it is so damaging to kind of exist in a world where there's a lot of stuff happening that we kind of all know is happening, but nobody's talking about the Mm. reality of it happening. And so when I first heard the words low demand parenting, I think I probably had like this, this, you know, two pronged sensation in my nervous system. And one was just like relief, like, oh my gosh, there's the words finally for what we're looking for. But then there is that little like twinge, right? Of like, uh uh-oh, is this okay? Yeah. So I'd love for you to talk about that. Like maybe even talk about and go wherever you want to, you know, like what low demand parenting looks like for you, you know, how you really describe that. And then maybe we can get into that piece of like, how do we um, be okay with parenting in a way that is so counterculture and in a way like does kind of feel like this big grand experiment i know i feel like that a lot in my own parenting like i think this is right it makes i mean whatever right even means but you know like i think this is okay but what if it's not (laughs) yeah oh my gosh yes okay let's start with what low demand parenting is yes so low demand parenting is a practice kind of like yoga is a practice or training for a marathon is a practice. It is a practice of reducing expectations and dropping demands to align with your suffering child right where they are. Yeah. So if you think about traditional parenting and probably the way most of us were raised, we were raised with the belief that expectations need to stay high And that it's up to us to rise up to the expectations of the adults in our life. And that part of that process teaches us that we can do hard things and that we are strong. And we probably heard things like, I didn't raise a quitter. And it's important for your coach for you to show up for the game. And a very, um, very much trained that the expectations of others are the most important thing. And that our own work is pushing harder in order to meet those expectations. And then there were some people that couldn't do it. They couldn't push harder. And those people often internalized beliefs like, I'm bad. I'm not good enough. I will never be good enough. And it leads to a um, a total release, but in the very negative way. It's like opting out of the system, out of believing that you could never participate anyway, and leads to all kinds of mental health concerns. And typically, um, often neurodivergent people are the ones who simply can't play the game the way that we were taught to play it. Um, Either way leads to significant mental health concerns, honestly. And so in so many adults that I work with, it's important to go back to those early narratives and and think about what did high demand parenting really do for you? How did you cope? What did you believe about yourself in the process? And I think that that process of coming to terms with the way we were parented and dominant parenting culture today is really important if we're going to begin to address that like 
the voice that you mentioned of like, is this okay? Um, you know, a lot of people say like, well, I, I, I did it and I'm okay. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I want to ask, are you, Yeah. are you okay? Yeah. Cause I, I'm not sure we are. So that's, that's point one. Um, So let's, thinking about coming to this point now as parents of children who are melting down and melting down regularly, what what are they telling us? They're saying this is too hard. And I, I love to define two categories. There's hard and there's too hard. Mm -hmm. Yes. And the essential teaching that I want to offer my kids is the wisdom to know the difference inside themselves. Not because I tell them what's hard and too hard. Not that I define it for them because I can't, I'm not living in their nervous system. I don't know what their brain is doing. And so I define a demand as anything that is too hard in the present moment. So it may be a demand one day and not the next day because the moment has changed and the situation is different. Putting on shoes may be totally doable when they're doing it by themselves. And it may be totally not doable when a sibling is trying to do it next to them and bumping them um, with their elbow. Like the particularities of what is too hard is, is so specific. And so part of what we are doing is training ourselves and training our children to simply ask the question, is this hard or is this too hard? Mm -hmm. And when it's hard, we do our best. We ask for help. We show up. We are resilient and strong. And when it's too hard, we let it go because dropping demands is actually an essential accommodation for ourselves and an essential part of feeling safe in the world. And that teaching our kids that we can let things go is, is, is like magic. Really? People are always asking me like, what's the magic pixie dust that makes this better? And I'm like, I'll tell you what it is. It's dropping demands. That's the magic pixie dust. Well, I love so much about what you just said. And especially that, you know, one of our ultimate goals is to help our kids or our humans that we're in relationship with, like whoever these are and ourselves begin, like know our own selves. Like what is hard and what is too hard. And I love how you distinguish between the two. And yeah, when it's hard, let's figure out what we need to do to kind of meet this challenge. Mm -hmm. And when it's too hard, (laughs) let's just be honest. Let's say it's too hard. And I also love how you said it varies. You know, I one of the things I say a lot, and I write about this in my book is when our kids tell us like what they need, it's our job to believe them and believe yes. them fiercely. And sometimes they don't tell us like, hey, mom, hey, dad, hey, grandma, hey, Uncle Joe. Like <laughs> they might not say it in the most like beautifully articulate language. But if we can get past that, it's actually they're actually being very, very clear with us hmm. about what is OK and what's not Yes. And it's our job to believe them. I love believe them fiercely. Yeah. That's beautiful. I'm going to say that again and tell people that you said it the first time. <laughs> yeah. I talk, um, and so I, I mentioned that there's like six steps that yeah. we move through. And 
um, I'm happy to overview what those are. The third one is listening to our children. And I think it's really important to listen to them in the way that they are able to speak. It's another demand that we drop. We don't demand that they speak to us in a back and forth question and answer adult conversation. For one thing, some of our kids don't use mouth words to speak. So we can recognize that even those kids are communicating beautifully and vibrantly, and we want to allow that communication to flow. We can also recognize that behaviors are communication and also that rude or disrespectful language is communication. And we can just let go of all of that judgment of our kids that that they can, we can only hear if they speak to us in the way we want to be spoken to. I think it's the complete opposite that they can only speak when we listen to them in the way that they can communicate. And there are children, if especially if you have teenagers and you're thinking like, why don't my kids talk to me? I think it's important to ask, is there a way that they are communicating that I could listen to? And if by hearing them, speak in the way that they are able to speak. If I do that over and over and over again, they may actually be more able to communicate that that we can heal what's been broken by this radical listening posture. Absolutely. Okay. So I want to hear about the six steps, right? Six steps. Mm -hmm. But before that, I do want, especially for my longtime listeners, I'm going to just pull a couple things together for people who've been listening to the show for a long time that you're really talking about like, radical attunement with the, our children's stress response system that some that, that in order for our kids to be themselves and grow this resilience in their nervous system which is good for our biology it's good for our physiology so it's not that we don't want our kids to have nice strong healthy resilient nervous systems but in order for that to happen we have to work with them to kind of find the sweet spot of stress and that when this when the stress that they're experiencing is too much it becomes toxic for the development of their healthy like stress response system and we've got to like really open up our kind of definition of stress mm-hmm. and and again like fiercely pay attention to what our kids are telling us about this is too much. And simply because it's not too much for your other kid or for the neighbor's kid or for the kids who kind of live in the middle of that bell-shaped curve Mm -hmm. (laughs) means nothing. I mean, it's too much for them. And when it's too much, we are hurting the development of a really, you know, resilient nervous system um, and so for, yeah, so especially for my longtime listeners, we talk a lot about the stress response system. And so that's what I hear you talking about is just how um, in tune we have to be with, I think, especially our more vulnerable kids mm-hmm. of how they're letting us know, like, this is the right amount of stress. This is too much stress. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'm interrupting the show real quick because if you happen to be a new listener, you might find yourself being a little overwhelmed by all this information. That makes total sense. I mean, there's like 150 episodes plus all the free resources that are available over my website. It's just a lot. So many folks have asked me, where do I start? So I created a separate podcast stream called Start here. What I did is I took the 10 episodes that I want you to listen to first, and then I want you to listen to in this specific order, and I put them into a separate podcast stream so that you don't have to search for them. You can just press play and they'll play one after the other after the other. If you go to robingobel.com slash start here, you'll be able to get an invitation to subscribe, and then you'll be able to listen right in the same podcast app you're using right now. RobinGobel.com slash start here. Yeah, this system is is very much built on um, the the groundbreaking work of Ross Green in yeah. his developing the plan A, plan B, plan C. I consider low-demand parenting to be a very robust plan C. Mm-hmm. So if people have come out of that. You might hear some similar language, and and that approach was the first thing that ever worked for me and my kids. Um, although I didn't find the collaborative problem solving to be very effective, um, Plan C was magic. Yeah. So we just lived there. Also, Mona Della Hook's work and drawing on and and yours coming out, drawing on the cutting edge research in neuroscience and what yeah. we're really discovering about the relationship between adults and children and the way that their brains are co-regulating Stuart Shanker's work and self-reg. All of these methods have been telling us what we need to hear. And I really consider low demand parenting, putting it into some clear actionable steps that parents can take to say, okay, if this is true, then what do I do? And that's where I want to step in and offer a path forward um, that is simple and clear. And it also comes out of parenting a pda which pathological demand avoidance, um, we're coming to recognize is just an extremely sensitive nervous system, a nervous system disability, and that the expression of the disability is, is this incredible attunement to the demands of the adults in their life. And that if there's a kind of a bell curve of sensitivity, then our PDAers are at the very edge. And so if it works for a PDAer, it's going to work for other kids too. Yeah. And in a way, I think of those kids as like the canary in the coal mine of childhood mm. Yes. saying, Hey, something's wrong here. And we're going to be, and we are so sensitive and also so self-protective that we're going to raise the alarm for on behalf of all children. And I'm so grateful for my PDA child because their refusal of the classic parenting paradigm is what enabled me to wake up and listen and, and create something new that, that really worked for them. I feel exactly the same way about like my like my area of expertise is these kids with serious you know significant complex trauma developmental and attachment trauma same like they're the canaries in the coal mine and their parents are I think leading the way in changing the world and I've had some parents say that that feels like you know just another burden and and I'm like well you're doing it anyway mm. so 
you're, let's look at the impact that it's having because when we can see this heavy burden we're carrying, we can see the benefits of it. I think that has the potential to kind of lower the impact of that heavy burden. But yeah, they're doing it anyway. I mean, they're at the forefront, I think, of huge, important cultural shifts. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. Yes. And it's so hard. It is just so hard. And so one of the things I, I really like to say is this is my one life. There is not another life waiting in the wings. There is not another reality that's about to swoop in. This is all I've got. And I want to be here for this one. I want to show up to this child, to myself, to this parenting reality. And it doesn't look like anybody else around me. And and most people can't even understand what I'm doing in my real life. And yet through the kind of miracle of online connection, I'm finding the other parents who feel the same way as me in these other circles. And so I want to offer that to your community too, that yes, like we are parenting in a radical way that, that maybe the whole world needs to see. Um, but also even if it's just for your one life and your child, I think it's enough. Absolutely. Absolutely. I really liked how you said, you know, with Ross, with Ross Green's approach um, that the collaborative problem solving piece didn't feel like it was super helpful in your specific situation. And I loved then that, that at least at this point, it seems like your reflection on that is kind of like, well, and that was okay. Like that doesn't mean it's not a valid model, <laughs> but mm-hmm. that didn't work that wasn't super helpful in my family. We really focused on all of those things that were, you know, those plan C pieces. Mm -hmm. So I would love to hear your journey of how that became okay. Like Mm. getting over the hump of like, is this, is this okay? Is this, is it okay to drop these demands in a way that is so counterculture hmm. to the world that we live in right now. Yeah. There's one point that has been getting stronger and stronger in me as I reflect on this. I spent a lot of time in the early days differentiating between low demand parenting and permissive parenting. Mm-hmm. And lately I'm doing less of that. And instead, I want to ask, is permissive parenting the horror that we've been fed the belief that it is? If we, most of us modern parents are, are very afraid of being permissive. But why are we so afraid of that? What is it that's so bad? So I dug back into the, the theory on permissive parenting and um, without going into it too much, you know, it, it originates in a school of thought that believes that the kind of way I described of like high expectations and using every tool possible to get kids to achieve it is the best way. And very much built on physical punishment for kids that cannot achieve. So 
that whole mode is thinking, well, if they can't do it, you hit them. So we just need to know that people who believed that also believed that to let things go would challenge parental power and control, which was the utmost, um, that that was the thing they wanted to hold on more than anything, was maintaining their parental power and control. And that if you lose parental power and control, you lose everything, was the belief system. And I'll just say that does not check out with modern neuroscience or with parenting experience. What does check out is that creating relationships of trust and connection require us to let go of parental power and control. We need to submit all of those old beliefs that we have, that we have to stay in control for our kids to feel safe and ask instead, what does this child need in order to feel safe? And some kids may need to know that their parents are in control in order to feel safe. That is not, I'm not questioning that that is true for some kids, but there are many kids who do not feel safe when their parents are enacting controlling paradigms over them, telling them what to do, holding rigid expectations, following through on these cause and effect. Like if you do this, I will do this. Those things make our kids feel unsafe and lead to more stress behaviors. And then it feeds the parents fear like, oh, I just need to be more consistent and more rigid. And I need more cause and effect. Like I need more punishments and consequences, even natural consequences. And this whole system is built on this deep fear of letting things go. And I think radical attunement is an act of releasing power and, and instead saying who you are and what you need is the most important thing, not how it makes me feel. So Yes, it's vulnerable and yes, it's scary, um, but it is also an act of trust in our child and in ourselves that we can handle it, whatever comes. So it's okay because there's really nothing to be afraid of here. There is not a cliff that we're going to fall over by aligning and attuning with our kids. Instead, it is just more connection, more nurture more trust for their, for their nervous system to realize this person is safe for me and I can be all the parts of myself with them. And in the long run, it actually leads our kids to being able to meet those expectations, but without us holding them over them, but by coming alongside them and then saying, where do you want to go? I'm going to, wherever you want to go, I'm going to go there with you. And that maybe those are the original expectations that we believed. And maybe they're not, maybe our kid wants to go in a different direction than we originally thought, but wherever they want to go, we walk side by side with them. I do think there is one piece of permissive parenting that I want to hold on to as being unhelpful. And that is something more like dissociative parenting. It's this swinging back and forth between holding the expectation And then just letting it go because it's all too hard and you can't figure out what else to do and you just want to break. I think that saying like, put your shoes on, put your shoes on, put your shoes on. Oh God, all right, fine. I'll do it for you. Um, I don't think that that's very helpful. Um, I think that that creates a real dissonance in our kids' understanding of what's okay and what's not okay. Are we really on their team or are we not? And I also think that when our kids are melting down so much and it's triggering so much distress in our systems, sometimes we just go away. We just 
thrift off and we're no longer present. And then all kinds of things can happen because we're not really attuned or connected to the present moment. And, and that is a kind of permissiveness that's really unhelpful for us because we're dissociating, which isn't really very good for our emerging sense of self. And it's really not great for our parent, for our kids, because they're like, where did my adult go? This is scary. Um, So I think that there are a few things to be watchful for, but I don't think that they have to do with dropping demands. No, I completely agree. And I love that we're um, kind of meandering into this topic because it comes up a lot, like in the community, in my community, in the club. And even recently, someone asked, um, or, or, you know, talks about how like sometimes I just get so confused about the difference between, you know, offering my child co-regulation and, and, you know, this attunement and meeting them where they are and all that kind of good stuff. And essentially, you know, moving into this relationship that feels a lot more codependent, like I'm relinquishing myself, you know, at the demand of their dysregulation and, um, and because I come from such an attachment theory background that I think about this aspect of co-regulation of it's not really co-regulation if what's happening is I'm personally getting too dysregulated. And mm-hmm. because of that, I swing one way or another, right? That that's not what we're talking about, which is, I think, similar to what you're saying mm-hmm. and what a lot of folks would label, you know, quote unquote, permissive parenting, that it just gets too uncomfortable internally for me to, um, you know, be with this child in this way. And so I just say, fine, forget it, whatever, do whatever you want. Or, well, I mean, that's just one very narrow example. Um, and... I think kind of goes back to the heart of all of this, which is and us in order for us to be super attuned to our kids, we should be super attuned to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that feels like a lot of work and really scary. <laughs> yes. Yes, it really does. Yes. And one other piece of just a voice for you, for you and for our community is that in the process, before we developed the low demand process, I was diagnosed with PTSD from my parenting experiences, and I went through an extensive healing process using all of the modalities that I could, um, EMDR, trauma-informed yoga, somatic experiencing, the safe and sound protocol, all of these ways of supporting my brain and nervous system in making sense of the parenting journey that I had, because ultimately I, I couldn't show up for my child anymore. I got to my own breaking point where I couldn't do it another day. And the physical sensations that I was experiencing were just so painful and dramatic. And I don't think we talk about that often enough that it it's it can be real capital T trauma, yes. what you're going through. Yes. And you do and and an hour away or a lunch date with a friend or a date night does not heal it. It requires all the professionals doing all the things so that you can show up for your child and you, you deserve that level of care and know our system is not currently built to offer that to parents. Um, we're, we're right on the very, very start of, of even noticing and naming that PTSD is a thing for parents, much less a system of support for it. 
Um, but those of us who've experienced it, we need to name it for what it is. Oh, absolutely. And, and the, so again, so many of the folks that I've worked with are caring for kids who themselves are impacted by trauma. And so for a long time, we used to say that parenting these kids had all this secondary trauma. And it's like, oh, no. I mean, there's that too. (laughs) But this is like just straight up traumatic. It is traumatic to be in relationship with somebody who's highly unpredictable, highly dysregulated. And that isn't blaming or shaming our kids. That's Mm. just speaking to what's real. And then you add in the systemic pieces that just exacerbate that trauma, right? That like nobody's believing us. Mm-hmm. Or they say ridiculous things like, I don't know, just make them go. Like, <laughs> okay, well, you just make them go. Like, <laughs> how, how, tell me without bungee cords how that's gonna, how that plan is gonna be enacted. <laughs> and then, you know, that there is no support. Mm-hmm. And like these parents are literally faced with professionals, well, wonderful professionals saying, I'm sorry, like what you need actually, truly, really doesn't even exist. Mm -hmm. Good luck. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it can be so disheartening and, and, and so challenging. And I also, I also believe that the act of naming and that like all the professionals that I worked with in my process, I was the first parent that they had worked with in this capacity. And yet now I'm referring parents to them all the time and no one else has to be the first with those professionals. And so we are laying a pathway for others to follow behind. And that I, I really feel honored in a way that I I took on that role and that no one else has to do that, at least with those people, you know, at, at every piece of the, of the system that we enter honestly, and that we transform will never be the same again. And I feel that way about pathological demand avoidance. I'm sure it's that way for you with complex trauma that people who disbelieve you and are willing to listen exactly. and willing to learn, yeah. those are the ones to invest in. The yes. ones that make you feel ashamed or judge you, just like move on yes. as quickly as possible because it's okay if they've never heard of it before, yeah. but they have to be like, you know what? I trust you and I want to learn more. Oh my gosh. I mean, you just like articulated what makes a good therapist, essentially. And folks talk a lot about like, well, nobody gets complex trauma. Nobody gets pathological demand avoidance. And and I'm like, well, I understand that that's true, but a great professional doesn't have to get it. They Mm -hmm. have to like be completely committed to showing up for your truth and your reality. They don't have Mm -hmm. to have ever heard of it ever before. And also I know a lot of professionals listen to this and I want you to hear that, that like, that's what we, that's what our clients need. They need us to say, I believe you and I trust you to kind of show me what, where we need to go. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
And then for every person after that, say, I've seen this before. Yes. Because my goodness, there is nothing like, I remember when we walked into an OT clinic for the first time with my four-year-old who wasn't able to wear clothes and the OT looked at him and said, you're one of ours. And it was the first professional that had ever looked at the two of us and been like, yep, I know what this is. And it brought tears to my eyes. Then it still does. And it really matters for those of us who have had such vulnerable experiences to feel seen. And so if it's your truth to say, I've never seen this before, but I trust you, then start there and then start saying, I've seen this before. And I will walk with you because those words are so powerful. And I've seen this before and I'm totally delighted, delighted and enamored by you. Yes. Like, that's kind of what I heard in the, the the story you just said was like, that, like, oh, this child's one of ours. That isn't just, oh, I've seen this before. This is, that's like a claiming of like, <sighs> I, I adore you in a way. And that, I mean, that is, that's it. That's, that's the magic. Mm-hmm. I love That's that the healing that relationship right there too. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, I am going to jump topics because you have this brilliant thing that I watched you say on, on social media the other day. And I wanted to just give my audience like a little snippet of it because I thought it was so profound. Just this little like, you know, I had like four or five images in this carousel. And it was about making a plan for ourselves after our kids have had, a, you know, whatever we want to call it, significant meltdown, a major episode of dysregulation, huge like attack watchdog moments, whatever we want to call it. And there is this like nervous system phenomenon that happens where sometimes it feels like our kids are just like, like in a moment, in moments, they're just moving on with life. Like everything's normal. <laughs> no problem. Like, and we are just like whiplashed. And it can feel like it takes a long time to recover. And in those moments then, which are very valid, we have absolutely our, our own bodies deserve our own care and attention. And that can be hard on our kid. Mm-hmm. So I loved how you even just gave words to it and talked about like, let's make a plan because you deserve it. Could you talk just a little bit about that? Yes. I started creating a post-meltdown plan for myself because I knew that I could maybe carve out 60 to 90 seconds for me before it's like, now let's play stuffies or Uno, come on, come on, mom. Oh my gosh. So first of all, that's just so real what you just said. Like who's even willing to admit that they've got to figure out how to take care of themselves and their nervous systems in 60 seconds. Mm -hmm. And that's just real. We have like, so thank you for just naming that. Yeah. And, and people's advice is like, go on a walk, go on a hike, call a friend. Like that's not doable for me. That's too hard for me and too hard for my kid. Yeah. Because also anything that requires rational thought is out the window for you at that moment. Your brain is not online. That's the whole point of making a plan that depending on yourself to know what to do when you're in that 60 second window is too much. It's too hard. 
So we're going to drop the demand Mm. that you know what to do. And instead, we're going to support you with a plan so that you can automate it and use that incredible ability of our our brains to do things outside of our rational decision-making capacity. That when something is like, it's just what I do, then you can actually flow into it, kind of bypassing the, okay, what do I do process? So um, I have four different elements of a good post-meltdown plan. The first one is alerting. It brings you back into your body in some capacity. And so um, it could be like cold. I find cold really alerting. And so you could hold an ice cube in your hand. You could drink icy cold water. You could stick your head in the freezer. You could eat a popsicle, anything that is going to tell your brain, I've got a body attached to me and that body is experiencing something. Then you want to choose something that is regulating in some form. Um, oh, let me make sure I get my order right. Are you looking at the um, slides no, right now? I was okay. looking at the time just because I'm wanting to honor yours. <laughs> ah, okay. So something that's regulating, I find chewing really regulating, might pop in some gum. It could be a squeeze and release. Um, oh, that's right. The second one is not regulating. It's releasing. So you want to release the tension in some form. Um, So sometimes I'll raise my arms up high and then Mm -hmm. them out and flop myself down. Sometimes I jump up and down and um, it's something that I want to do when things are really going wrong. I want to jump up and down. And so I do it. Um, Then something that's regulating. So something like chewing is often regulating, deep breathing, tapping, rubbing, things that are um, like slightly nurturing and repetitive for your body. And then something that is a um, kind of a close, like I close my eyes and take a deep breath, or I'll say something to myself, like I can do this. Um, Something that's like refueling and just having that four step. So my four step ritual is I grab ice water. I drink it through a straw. Then I find a crunchy snack. I love like Doritos or something with like a big flavor. Mm -hmm. I crunch it. Then I close my eyes. I take a deep breath and I, and then I go back into parenting. And just knowing that that is there for me and all it requires is a cup and a straw. And if I can't find a straw, it's okay. Um, And some people use essential oils. And if you need something like that, like put them in the place where the meltdown usually happens or keep them. One of my greatest tips is to wear a fanny pack on hard days and put the things in there that you need. So they're with you all the time, whatever your kid needs or you needs in the case of one of these panic attack moments, or again, whatever you want to call it. So I put my earplugs in there, I put gum in there. Um, I put like my kids chewy in there. Um, and it's just right on my body. And it's just a way that I kind of say like this day, this on so that I'm ready, no matter what happens. I let go of the expectation that I will be able to find the things that I want in the moment. And instead I kind of do it over my breakfast, like, okay, I'm ready. Uh, and just like knowing my plan, having my things, those things make a huge difference. It's, it's noticeable the difference of that 60 seconds when I do it over not doing it. I don't always do it. I'm definitely not perfect, sure. but when I do, it helps. And that is so much better than going into stuffies thinking, you darn kid, you just put me through the most excruciating hour. I'm still bruised from what you did. And I do not want to be told what to do as we play stuffies now. (laughs) And they will feel that energy. 
and and it will probably lead to more difficulty down the road. So this yeah. one little step helps to interrupt that cycle that we can get caught in um, with just a tiny bit of nurture. Oh yeah. I love that you're honoring, like that's a reasonable reaction to have. Like, I don't want to connect with somebody who just hurt me or left me feeling afraid. Like that makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> We also need to, you know, find these ways that we can honor our own truth and be available to connect with our kids next for all sorts of reasons. Um, So you said, and I'll make sure that this gets written down somewhere, like the show notes or the summary, but something alerting, something releasing, something regulating, and then something that brings a little closure to yourself and that that literally can be done in like 60 seconds. Ideally. Yeah. Like the shorter, the better, really. Right. I wouldn't think, I mean, it takes some practice, I think, to develop these rituals that eventually become more implicit and then just beginning the ritual starts to bring on that experience, you know, Mm -hmm. of, of, you know, getting more connected to ourselves and more regulated um, and I love your tip for a fanny pack. I often suggest that parents put fanny packs on their kids, but I've honestly, for the similar reasons, like, so it's all right there, but I've really never thought about that for ourselves. I don't know why, but all these little tiny things that we do that bring some sense of like connection to ourselves and regulation to ourselves, like I'm imagining already, like, what, what am I going to put in mine? Mm-hmm. You know, and there's yeah. some things that definitely come right to mind. So I love the pre-planning involved, the very deliberateness of like, I deserve to be taken care of in this way. Mm-hmm. And also, again, just what we've been talking about the whole time is like this fierce radical acceptance of like, I wish I didn't have to carry around a fanny pack to get me through my kids, you know, nervous system states throughout the day. But this is my reality. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so just being connected to that truth brings safety to something that is, other, you know, otherwise really unsafe. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm. And I, I wouldn't be doing justice to this whole approach. If I don't also say that a core piece of low demand living is dropping demands for yourself. So if you are like, I know I'm doing this for my kid and I want to be more intentional about it, but you know, it's just not really doable right now. It's kind of too hard to do that inner work. Then start by letting things go for you asking what is hard and what is too hard. If it is too hard to do the dishes tonight, can we break out paper plates and you can do it in a way that's still aligned with your deep why? Like if what's really matters to you is respecting environmental needs, then find compostable ones and pre-plan having those compostable ones right next to your regular dishes so that you feel just as good about grabbing those as you do about like setting the table or invest in um, some earplugs that really properly work and support you. Have them with you. And when things are too loud for you, don't wait to like dissociate, like pop those earplugs in yeah. and give yourself that buffer um, so that it, maybe their kids are just playing happily. 
But because of the reality of, of how often they yell at mm-hmm. a dysregulation, the, the happy loud sounds are also triggering your nervous system. So it's okay to block out the happy loud sounds. Like it's okay not to be able to delight in the sounds of your kids playing because it makes you feel unsafe. So letting go of what's too hard for yourself is really the best place to start with this whole approach. And letting go of what we learned was how we were supposed to parent and what good parents are and the kinds of, you know, what the kinds of kids good parents raise. I know like my husband and I have, you know, pretty regularly try to, you know, sort through, you know, these in many ways, like really patriarchal colonial Mm -hmm. ideas about what it means to be a good person and to work hard and to have grit. And how do we untangle that in our own like desperate need for perfectionism while also, you know, creating an environment of enough demand (laughs) that it still honor again, honors the personhood which is mm-hmm. really this common theme to just keep coming back to. But my point is, is it's just a lot of continual unpacking. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. And there, there's like saying that these events are morally neutral. Yes. Like yes. eating together at the table is morally neutral. Like yes. if your child eats in their room under a blanket with a screen, that is okay. And not just okay, it's good. It's yeah. r- the right thing for them. It is the way that your family is feeding yourselves in ways that are nurturing and, and right on for you. And you can still create a family ritual. If what matters about the table is family connection, then find a kind of family connection that works for your family. Yes. Or if you completely let go of screen time boundaries, because you just decide that battling over turning on and turning off is not working for you you can choose radical trust in that space and live with what that means for your family. And if you need to um, let your child go barefoot everywhere because they simply cannot tolerate the feel of socks and shoes on their feet and strangers are, this is a personal example, but strangers are always saying, hey, where are your shoes? And I say, we're good. And that the, what they say doesn't matter. I really feel like we become shame-proof when we align with ourselves. And when we are aligned with ourselves, then we can extend that to our children. And then we show, we model for them what it looks like to choose ourselves first. And yes, it's countercultural and no one will understand. And also what a great gift. Hugely amazing gift. I only can fantasize about what my life would be like if I'd gotten that gift when I was small. And in some ways I was like, well, I probably wouldn't be doing this work and I really like it. So (laughs) there's so there's moments of grief of how, you know, how we've come to this, this place and how hard it has been. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Every time I love my kids and radical acceptance, I think about my inner child. And that it comes right back to them. That when I say out loud, you're okay, just the way you are, that the little me inside hears those words. And it's mm. like, yes, yes. Like I, I become the parent that I always wanted and that I'm healing right alongside my kids. Yeah. This has been the best way to start Saturday morning. So thank <laughs> you for carving out this time. 
and for, you know, connecting with me and then allowing, you know, us to connect with all of the folks who listen to this show. This has just been so delightful. I hope this is the first of many, many conversations and connections that we have. I hope so too. Tell everybody about your upcoming book, because when this episode airs, your book's about to come out. Yes. Yeah. July 21st. Um, celebrating my 40th birthday with a new book in the world. It's called Low Demand Parenting. It is readable by parents whose nervous systems are shot and life is chaotic. It is short on purpose and includes worksheets and affirmations and all kinds of actionable steps that you can take to begin dropping demands and practicing this radical acceptance of your child. And I'm really, I'm really proud of it. And like my, my deep hope is if I could leave a lasting legacy on parenthood, it would be to elevate dropping demands and put it on the pedestal that it deserves to be on so that we can all feel so proud of ourselves when we do it. Y'all, I've had the opportunity to read this book and I don't, recommend things lightly. And I know y'all know that. And this book is worth it. Like everyone listening, go check out this book. It was easy. It was approachable. It was short. It was practical. It was, of course, based in science, which, you know, I really like. So (laughs) everybody go get this book. I mean, it was just such a breath of fresh air of this constant, like, this is okay. This is you are not screwing up your kids by dropping demands and being in attunement with yourself and your kid, just like page after page after page. So everybody go get it. And on Instagram, it's low demand Amanda, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. And I would genuinely love it if one of your listeners reached out to me and like DM'd me on Instagram and said, Hey, I heard your podcast and this is what I thought. Like I always write back and um that's one of the places that I get my needs met for community. So you would be, um, it would be a delight to hear from you. Wonderful. Everybody, I'll make sure all these are linked in the show notes and over on the summary on my website. So you can just click right to all of this goodness. Thank you so much. Thank you. See, I told you that was a good one, didn't I? Uh. Super happy to have met Amanda. You are really going to want to check out this book. It's kind of short and sweet. It's a real easy read. I'm also loving Amanda over on Instagram. Down in the show notes and over on the summary on my website, I'm going to make sure that there's a link to her book, a link to her Instagram, and specifically to her Instagram post where she talked about things that parents can do after a meltdown. Since I recorded this episode with Amanda, I've been telling people to get themselves a fanny pack. I thought that was just so simple and also so brilliant. All right, y'all, as always, I'm so honored. I'm so delighted that you've tuned in once again and that you are a part of this movement where we are bringing nervous system healing, not just to our kids, but to the whole world. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. One of the very best ways to spread awareness and increase the number of adults in our world who can see kids and other humans through the lens of their nervous system instead of just focusing on their behavior is to get the word out about this podcast. And the best way to get the word out about this podcast is to rate or review it. So if you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, if you'll take a quick second, like right now, to go to your podcast app, review it, rate it, that would be amazing. Thank you so much for everything you do for kids and for relational health in this whole world. I'll see you next week. Are you ending this episode with maybe a big sigh of relief? Like, yes, finally, someone gets me and my kids. But also maybe a sense of like, okay, but now what? All right, y'all, I've got lots of possible now what's. If you want to connect with me directly, like pick my brain, have access to me almost every day, not to mention hundreds of other parents from around the world who totally get what it's like to be you, then you're going to want to join us in the club. We have monthly live events, including groups for siblings of dysregulated kids, a huge video library with something like 80 or 90 videos, plus transcripts and certificates of completion. Plus, of course, a very active forum that I'm participating in every single day. We open for new members periodically. So go check robingobel.com slash the club. If we aren't open now, you can put yourself on the waiting list and I'll let you know the moment we open for new members. That's robingobel.com slash the club. Now, if you're a professional and you want to strengthen your capacity to work with the families of kids with big baffling behaviors and vulnerable nervous systems, plus use all of my materials, including a 12-module course that follows raising kids with big baffling behaviors, plus be included in an online searchable directory so families all over the world could find you, then you're looking for Being With, which is my year-long immersive training program that runs January through December. So you'll want to go to robingobel.com slash being with, read all about it. And if you're interested, put yourself on that waiting list too. Now, if you just maybe need a little extra connection and co-regulation, but don't feel like you need to join the club, then you can just keep listening to my podcast. Or you could go subscribe to my Start Here podcast, and that'll give you 10 episodes in order that will take you through cultivating a great foundation of parenting with regulation, connection, and felt safety. That's at robingobel.com slash start here. You have to go there. You can't just find it in your podcast app. Or you could get yourself a copy of Raising Kids with Big Baffling Behaviors, paper book, audio book, ebook. You can get that anywhere books are sold. Or you could just head to my website download one of my very many free resources. I keep them all really easy to access at robingobel.com slash free resources. 
webinars, masterclasses, ebooks, infographics, all sorts of stuff. Go check it out. See what of those things could be supportive of you or maybe to the other adults in your life who are helping support you and your child. There are just so many ways that you and I could be more connected and you can get the amount of co-regulation and support that you need. If it feels like a lot to remember, all you have to do is go to robingobel.com and take your time clicking around, seeing what I got there. I am so, so glad you and I are connected now. And I can't wait to be with you again soon in our next episode of The Baffling Behavior Show. Bye-bye, y'all.